Hey, for the followers of Jesus, his resurrection launched them on a new adventure. It was the beginning of faith, not its ending. After Jesus' resurrection, his disciples would need more faith, not less. They now were tasked with the challenge of serving a risen and an exalted Lord. I'll never forget a scene from the 1977 television miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, the political Jew who had conspired with Judas. He enters the empty tomb, and he discovers that the man that he had helped crucify has been risen from the dead. He gazes off into the distance, thinking of the ramifications of this resurrection, and he whispers to himself, now it begins. Now it all begins. Well, today we'll study the end of a gospel, but the beginning of the gospel. Now, in John chapter 19, remember that Joseph, Nicodemus, and the women had taken the body of Jesus to a garden grave, a nearby tomb, and they were rushed. At this point, the traditions of their Passover Seder were more pressing than providing their Passover Savior a decent burial. Despite their time constraints, though, they did the best that they could. And then they rolled a stone over the mouth of the tomb. They decided to return on Sunday to finish the job, which is where chapter 20 begins. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, the Greek word translated early is actually a technical term. It refers to the fourth and final watch of the night from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. It's interesting when you piece together all the gospels here, Mark 16 verse 2 tells us that the women came, and I quote, when the sun had risen. John says, while it was still dark. Perhaps they left in the dark, but they arrived after sunup. Matthew seems to complete the picture. He says the women came as the day began to dawn. Well, then she, that is Mary Magdalene, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. This was the special title, of course, that John used of himself. And they said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. At this point, Mary suspected robbery more so than resurrection. Well, Peter therefore went out and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb And so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John was younger. Perhaps he was in better shape than Peter. Peter probably took off sprinting, but petered out. You know, he'd been eating a lot of crow recently, or rooster. He'd been eating a lot of rooster over the last previous days, and he'd gotten a little heavy for him. Verse 5, and he, that is John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded together in a place by itself. And here is every mother's favorite part of the Easter story. She always points this out to her kids. Even after his resurrection, Jesus folded his clothes Verse 8, then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in. Apparently, John had won the race, and he had peered into the tomb. 
But he waited until Peter came to catch up and to actually enter himself. He followed Peter into the tomb and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Something caught John's attention and sparked his faith. Maybe, maybe John figured that if the body had been moved, the grave clothes would have gone with the corpse. And grave robbers certainly wouldn't have taken the time to fold clothes. Maybe it was the folded clothes that said to John that Jesus had risen. You know, seriously, I I, talked about the folded clothes facetiously, but I think we should add neatness to the virtues of Jesus. That John saw his folded clothes, or at least the way he folded his clothes, John knew that Jesus was tidying up. The tidying up had been done by Jesus. By the way, Jesus is still tidying up people's lives, yours and mine. Well, then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Mary had returned for a second inspection. And she saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Or literally wailing. Mary wasn't just whimpering. She wasn't just sniffling. She was bawling her eyes out. She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now understand this scene. This is so dramatic. Mary sees two angels in white. Two heavenly, supernatural creatures, no less. And yet Mary could care less about the angels. All that's on her mind is seeing Jesus. She's missing Jesus. And you know, when you're longing for Jesus, nothing else will substitute. Nothing else. Not even an angel or two. You know, ever so often the church gets preoccupied with angels. A fascination arises, books get written, a television show or two gets produced. Christians go on an angel craze. They get touched by an angel. Yet when Mary sees and speaks to two angels, she isn't even moved. Her heart, her mind are preoccupied with her Lord Jesus. Just goes to show spiritual phenomena, supernatural manifestations, even angelic visitations are no substitute for Jesus. Hey, you can mistakenly allow the things of God to distract you from God himself. Throughout the Bible, angels testify of Jesus, but they never take his place. Verse 14, now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Why did she not know? Well, we're not told. It could have been a kind of spiritual blindness. Later, when the risen Lord joins the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke says that their eyes were restrained. This could have been the same phenomena here. Or it could be that since Mary had concluded that Jesus was dead and had no expectation of seeing him alive, she just failed to recognize her living Lord right before her. But there's a more likely explanation, in my opinion, Isaiah 52 verse 14 predicted that Messiah's visage would be so marred, so disfigured, that he would no longer even look like a man. 
The brutality of the Romans ensured the fulfillment of this prophecy. You remember Jesus' face was pummeled with their fists, his brow punctured with thorns, his beard literally plucked out by the roots. If there had been a funeral, it would have been closed casket. Jesus could have passed for a boxer who'd gone 15 rounds or resembled a victim of a car crash who'd been thrown face first through the glass. Later in John in Luke chapter in, sorry in John chapter 20 in this chapter we'll see scars in Jesus's hands and in his side. Why wouldn't there also be scars in his back and in his brow and on his face? I believe Mary failed to recognize Jesus because his face was scarred and disfigured. His appearance was unlike the man that she'd known before. You know, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus is in heaven. And the same John sees him and says, I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. It seems Jesus still bears the scars of crucifixion. You know, it may be a shocker for us when we get to heaven and we see Jesus face to face. We'll see his scars and we'll weep when we realize what our sin has cost Jesus. It's so true. The only man-made thing in heaven are the scars of our Lord Jesus. And yet those same scars will remove any doubt that he loves us. Over time, I believe we'll grow to love those scars. What's repulsive on earth will be admired in heaven. But for the moment, outside the tomb, it was his scars that blinded Mary from identifying her Lord. And then verse 15, Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. It was when Jesus spoke Mary's name that her eyes were opened. How fitting. And I'm sure it was the way he spoke her name. You know, when Mary's mom called her by name, it was to scold her. When the men in her life spoke her name, they were hitting on her. When her neighbors said Mary, it was to judge her. But the way Jesus called her name spoke of forgiveness and acceptance. When he said Mary, she knew she was loved. Listen now, listen. I want you to hear Jesus calling your name. Notice too how Mary refers to Jesus. You know, a Jew could show his or her teacher varying degrees of respect. At the lowest level, you could call him uh, Rob, Rab, or Rob. To add a measure of respect, you would use the term Rabbi. The highest honor was Rabboni, which is what Mary called Jesus. And then in verse 17, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Now we're not told of her posture, but somehow Mary must have clutched on to Jesus, embraced him vigorously. Perhaps she fell before him and grabbed his feet. That's what I imagine. Think now of all Jesus meant to Mary. 
Earlier in her life, she had played the prostitute and was a sleepover for demons. When she met Jesus, he had turned her whole life right side up. She was freed and forgiven. The carpenter from Nazareth had built for her a new life. When Mary lost Jesus, she lost everything. Unlike the other disciples, she had no family to turn to, no friends to go back to, no business to start over again. Mary was homeless. And this is why Mary Magdalene clung to Jesus with all her might, grabbed him literally and held on. She'd seen him crucified. Now she'd never let him go. She wanted him to stay with her forever. But Jesus redirects her affections with what seems like cryptic words. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. See, Jesus is saying to Mary that their relationship isn't ending, but it's changing. He's saying here, Mary, I'm here, but only for a short time. Don't get attached to me, my physical present form. When I ascend to the Father, we'll still relate, but we'll do so spiritually, not tangibly. See, Mary, like you and me, needs to learn to relate to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus will indwell Mary. She'll continue to know her Lord, but not as she's done in the past, but through His Spirit. Thus, rather than tighten her grip, she needs to strengthen her faith. We do too. And then verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things to her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut. And notice that word shut in the original language. It's very forceful. It means locked and bolted. These frightened disciples, they had barricaded themselves in. You know, this makes the suggestion that the disciples beat up the Roman guards and stole the body of Jesus to foster a hoax preposterous. I mean, these timid disciples were too afraid to venture out on the street corner. But Jesus stuns them. Where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. This is the first time the risen Lord had appeared to the disciples since they forsook him in the garden. And I'm sure they feared this encounter. I mean, they deserved Jesus' wrath, his condemnation. They had forsaken him in his hour of trial. But instead... His first words to them convey forgiveness. He says, peace be with you. Now, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I want you to realize Jesus' resurrected body was not a different body. It was the same body born to Mary. The same body that walked on water. It was the body that had been nailed to the cross. You could see the scars. You could see the reminders of his ordeal. The same chemicals and organs that died and had begun to deteriorate were reassembled in a new way at his resurrection. His body could now pass through walls and travel distances instantly, and yet it was tangible. It was a tangible body. I mean, it could digest a plate at a fish fry. This was his body. Ghosts don't eat fish. Jesus was no longer flesh and blood. His blood had been spilt for us. But he was still flesh and bone. 
His now glorified body was the same body that Mary had laid in a manger. And yet soon it would ascend into the clouds. Through the process of resurrection, his body had emerged no longer bound by the limitations of time and space. Think of a historic building damaged by a fire. In the renovations, the older structure gets rebuilt, but included are much-needed upgrades. It becomes new and improved. It gets modified. It's the same building, but it's a new and improved model. This is what we can look forward to when Jesus raptures his church. Jesus is called the first fruits of our resurrection. In short, he's the prototype. We'll receive resurrected bodies with Jesus-like properties. No more will I worry about locking my keys in a car. Rather than have to pick the lock, I'll just kind of slide my atoms between the atoms of the door panel, and I'll be able to work my way right into the, to the car. Us atoms just do that. Presto, I'm in. Actually, I won't even need a car or an airplane. Want to go to Hawaii? Boom, I'll just snap my fingers. In fact, Jesus' ascension to heaven proved that not even the earth's gravitational pull will be a concern for Christians with resurrected bodies. As Paul said to the Corinthians, one day these mortal bodies must put on immortality and these corruptible bodies must put on incorruptibility and I can't wait. And then verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And to any onlooker at the time, this would have seemed such a stretch. I mean, these fearful disciples had locked themselves in, yet Jesus is sending them out. They obviously need some help. And here it comes. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. The prerequisite for salvation, according to Romans chapter 10, verse 9, is belief in the resurrection of our Lord. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And here, now that the disciples believe, God's spirit enters their spirit and sparks new life in them. I believe it's here that the original disciples were born again. In John 14, verse 17, Jesus had said of the Holy Spirit, he dwells with you and will be in you. And now Jesus makes good on that promise. The disciples receive the Holy Spirit to dwell in them. In the Garden of Eden, God breathed into Adam's nostrils, and the Bible says he became a living soul. Now here, Jesus breathes on his men, and they come alive spiritually. And then verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now remember, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave his original disciples a special authority. He gave them the authority to bind and to loose, which was rabbinical language for either prohibiting or permitting. To bind was to prohibit. To loose was to permit. And this was a special authority given to the apostles, enabling them to establish for Christians how their new way of relating to God would apply to practical issues in their lives. 
This was how Jewish believers were weaned off of the Old Testament law and taught what life now looks like when you live it by faith. And here Jesus applies this law of binding and loosing to forgiveness. In other words, here's the problem. How do we know we're forgiven? How do we get God's assurance that we're forgiven? Does he drop a handwritten pardon out of the sky? Well, of course not. But in Acts, the apostles set forth terms. They bound and they loosed. They said, if you want forgiveness from God, you have to repent and believe. Even today, it's by following that apostolic pattern that Christians know that they've been forgiven and that they've been made a child of God. In Acts 15, we find the classic case of binding and loosing. The apostles in Jerusalem meet to decide if Gentile believers need to be circumcised to be saved. And their verdict was no. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. All anyone needs to do to know Jesus is to repent and believe. The same apostolic pattern. The original apostles in Acts set the terms that applied to the church both then and till the end of the age. Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas wasn't there. Thomas is going to have to learn faith the hard way. And Thomas learned another truth, by the way, taught in Hebrews chapter 10. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. For when believers gather, the risen Christ is liable to show up. Miss a meeting and you might miss meeting Jesus. I'll bet after this, Thomas never missed church again. What do you say? Well, the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, put my finger into the print of the nails, put my hand into his side, I won't believe. Thomas was a hardcore skeptic. He wanted tangible fruit. He was a show-me disciple. He wasn't going to believe without evidence. Well, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. And this time, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, notice he picked out Thomas, Reach your finger here. And look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Take note, Thomas Thomas calls Jesus God. And Jesus never once rebukes him or corrects him. Take note of that. It's blasphemous for a human to receive worship. But Jesus was no mere mortal. Thomas says he's Lord and God. And here is one of the boldest affirmations of his deity in all of the Bible. And ironically, it falls from the lips of its most famous doubter, Thomas. I like what Blaise Pascal once said, Only he who doubts can truly believe. Thomas proves that through working, that by working through honest doubt, that's what often makes for a strong faith. And then verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. 
Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The world today says seeing is believing, but Jesus teaches us the opposite. He tells us that believing is really seeing. Wait until you see with your physical eyes and you'll wait too late. Today it's when we believe that Jesus opens our eyes. He enables us to sense his presence and to experience his power and become confident of his mercy. Notice verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. I think this is the most frustrating verse in all the Bible. Just imagine the wonders that went untold. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The Gospels don't give us all that we would like to know, but they do give us all that we need to know. Rather than complete biographies, the Gospels were actually testimonies written to encourage us to put our faith in Jesus. And then John continues in chapter 21. Now, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, that is the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that is James and John, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. Now, one commentary I read points out that Peter's words here are in the present progressive tense, which means they speak of a continual activity. In other words, Peter isn't suggesting just a weekend fishing trip, a recreational trip out to go fishing. No, he's returning to work. Remember, Peter was a fisherman by trade. He had left a business behind to follow Jesus. For the last three and a half years on the road with Jesus, they had been thrilling. But now it's time for Peter to get back to the real world. I mean, the heady days of faith in God for his next meal or for a place to sleep were over. It's time once more to wet a few nets, start taking care of business again. This may be what Peter's thinking. If it's true that Peter was returning to his old vocation, it's obvious why. I'm sure he felt that his days in ministry were over. I mean, he had failed the Lord in such a colossal way. How could God ever use him again after what he'd done? Oh, it was fun while he lasted, but old Pete figured he needed to find some secular work. Verse 3. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, it's interesting that when we fail in one area of life, it's common to bolster our sagging self-esteem by falling back on an old proficiency. I'm sure Peter thought that if he couldn't make it as a disciple, at least he knew how to catch fish. I'll just go back to fishing. Yet notice the words. They caught nothing. Let me suggest to you, if you've been called to serve the Lord in a certain capacity, you'll never be happy or successful doing anything else. God will see to it. Paul wrote in Romans 11, verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God sees to it that the only fishing Peter will ever be good at is fishing for men. 
But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? In other words, the question that every fisherman gets asked, Have you caught anything? They answered him, No. I'm sure Peter and his pals were depressed. Now they added fishing to their list of failures. And yet they're closer to success than they think. You know, at times we can get discouraged. We assume that we have such a long way to go. We may be closer to victory than we realize. Often the distance between success and failure is just the width of a small fishing boat. For Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And so they cast what they had to lose. And now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Remember, this wasn't the first time that they had experienced such a miracle. In Luke chapter 5, it records a similar incident earlier in Jesus' ministry. And it was the similarity between the two occasions that prompted John. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as John saw the nets bulging with fish, it clicked for him. It's the Lord. I believe John included this story to teach disciples today how to relate to their risen Lord. For you never know when Jesus might pop in. Hey, Jesus is alive and he's well and he's running loose out there. And when you least expect it, Jesus just might reveal himself to you in your ordinary life. Notice verse 7, now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and plunged into the sea, which is typical Peter. I mean, the outer garment was bulky and heavy. Peter had taken it off to do the work. Why does he put it back on to jump into the water? Peter's just being Peter. He's reacting, not thinking. Peter was impulsive. Remember for Peter, it was ready, fire, aim. But you got to give him credit. Peter never lacked for passion. When Peter saw Jesus, he was always first to jump in. And then verse 8, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits or 300 feet, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus already had breakfast on the fire. And welcome to his classroom. The catch and the campfire were props that Jesus would use to hammer home the lesson that he wants to teach them. You remember where Peter denied the Lord? It was by a fire of coals. Maybe like the one that Jesus had built there on the beach. And bread and fish. These were the elements that Jesus had used to feed 5,000, which was the miracle that had led to Peter's stunning confession a few days afterwards in Caesarea Philippi when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here, both the campfire and the catch were visual aids that Jesus used to recommission Peter. Verse 10, now Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up 
and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. You know, a wet net and a large catch weighed several hundred pounds. That Peter dragged it to shore all by himself confirms the fact that he was physically a strong man. And there have been volumes written explaining the significance of this exact number of fish, 153. People have taught that there are 153 different types of fish, and thus this represented the entire world. Others suggest that there were 153 nations on earth at the time of Jesus. For some reason, John counted and recorded 153 fish. Could it be the reason he did is that there were 153 fish? Well, Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Now notice this, Jesus invites his men not to lunch and not to dinner, but to breakfast. You know, you you eat breakfast in the morning at the outset of your day. And this is a new beginning. This is a new day for his disciples. Jesus is about to reinstate his disciples back to ministry. And notice the precedent here. Jesus is about to send his disciples out to feed others. But first, he feeds them. And this is a bedrock principle in God's kingdom. Before you go to feed others, you first need to be fed by Jesus. Verse 13. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. And likewise the fish. Notice the risen Christ. He's still serving. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? But here's the question, these what? Do you love me more than these? This is what an English teacher refers to as a dangling participle. Does it mean these fish? Well, it's possible that Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than fishing your former career? Will you leave all a second time and come and follow me? Or he could be asking Peter, do you love me more than these men here around you? This would be a flashback to the upper room and Peter's arrogant boast. You remember in Matthew 26, verse 33, he claimed to have a greater love for Jesus than the other disciples. He had said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. But now after denying Jesus, does Peter really love him more than these? John continues, Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. You know, when Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? The Greek word that he uses for love is the word agape. It was one of several Greek terms used to describe various kinds of love. And agape was the strongest. It spoke of a sacrificial, unselfish, undying kind of love. But notice here, when Peter responds, he uses a different term for love. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but the word he uses for love is phileo, which means brotherly love. We talk about Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. 
Phileo was way below agape. See, obviously, Peter is no longer boasting here. He loved Jesus. He did. But from here on, he'll never trust in his own strength to demonstrate that love. Jesus says, do you agape me, Peter? He says, Lord, I I phileo you. I love you. It's a brotherly love. Verse 16, Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Again, Jesus uses that Greek word agape, but Peter responds, phileo. Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This time Jesus alters his question and he uses Peter's term. He says, Simon, do you phileo me? It's as if Jesus is letting Peter know that he understands. He's saying, he said, better to be honest, Peter, better to admit your weakness than to make a rash and prideful boast. If phileo is all you've got, I'll take it and I'll help it grow. Jesus took Peter's phileo or brotherly love and he grew it into an agape or sacrificial love. And any idea why Jesus repeats his question three times? Well, Jesus is reversing the effects of Peter's failure. Peter had denied the Lord three times, so Jesus recalls him three times. The mercy of Jesus sees to it that no one permanently strikes out. Jesus offers hope for redemption. He always does. And notice what Peter is supposed to do if he loves Jesus. He's supposed to feed my sheep, Jesus says. See, the way you love Jesus is by loving his people. You know, you can say you love Jesus, but it rings hollow if you're not willing to feed a few sheep. When we feed someone's spiritual hunger or when we lead a soul back into the fold, that's how we love the Savior. Verse 18, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. This prediction by Jesus is taken prophetically of Peter's martyrdom, that he was girded or bound by another and stretched out and carried against his wishes, describes Peter's crucifixion at the hands of Nero in 65 AD. And it's interesting, Peter requested to be crucified upside down. And do you know why? For he knew he was not worthy to suffer as his Lord. Earlier in John 13, verse 37, in the upper room, Peter had boasted, Lord, I will lay down my life for your sake. Peter failed that night and denied his Lord. But he'll get another opportunity. And through the power of the Spirit, this time, he'll love Jesus with agape or with sacrificial and sacrificing love. Verse 20. 
Then Peter, turning around, saw John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, which is the one who betrays you? Well, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? And this is so much like you and me. Jesus is challenging Peter. He's speaking hard words to him. So what does Peter do? He shifts the conversation. Lord, let's talk about somebody else. He points to John. And he says, what about him, Lord? Let's talk about him for a while. See, as long as I can talk about my wife's problems, as long as I can talk about my friend's problems or my church's problems, I don't have to work on any of mine. Verse 22. Jesus said to Peter, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. One of the most subtle traps in the Christian life is comparison. When I judge my orders or my calling with those of someone else, the details of God's plan differ for each of us. What's deemed necessary for you is not always what God has planned for me and vice versa. This involves our eyes and our nose. Keep your eyes on Jesus and keep your nose out of other people's business. As Jesus says, what is that to you? You follow me. And Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die but that if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? At the time, Jesus' words were misunderstood and taken out of context, and a falsehood developed about John. A rumor started that he would live forever. Obviously, he didn't. That was not Jesus' intention. But remember the point here. Jesus has a plan for you that may not look like his plan for me. The master gives the orders, not the servants. If Jesus schedules a martyr's death for Peter and a rapture for John, then so be it. That's his prerogative. Well, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. John often spoke of himself in the third person, and here he closes the letter by doing the same. It was he who wrote this gospel. Its truth is unassailable. And he closes by stirring our imaginations further. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, oh, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. We'll have to wait to heaven to know it all. No know-it-alls down here. We'll have to wait to heaven. And there we have the Gospel of John.